0: Thank you. My name is Will Wheaton, and Jack Thompson can suck my balls. I should point out that today's keynote address has been rated MA by the ESRB. If you have a problem with that, please go fuck yourself. Okay. in all seriousness, My name is Will Wheaton and I am a gamer. Like everyone here, I am here because I love gaming. I have lived through two home console crashes, the rise and fall of the arcade, I have even played Night Watch on Sega CD. (laughs) I remember when Game Boys were just black and kind of like a yellowy pea soup, kind of green. And I own every Atari 2600 game ever released, and I keep them right here on this USB key. (laughs) What I really want to do today is tell you all a couple of stories about growing up in the early console and arcade years and examine the notion that video games are some sort of antisocial menace to society. And by examine, I mean throw it in the back of a stolen car, fuck its brains out for health, then beat it up and take my money back. <laughs> to get us started, I'm gonna throw out some gaming references. So we can all see what generations are represented in this room. So feel free to holler out if you get any of these. <laughs> awesome. Some of you remember a time when there were no games. It is very dark. You are likely to be eaten by a groove. Would you like your possessions identified? Yeah. You have died of dysentery. Yeah. Wizard needs food badly. Beware I live. Our princess is in another castle. has been planted. They don't really want you to play Freebird, they're just mocking you. My point in that little exercise of making you cheer is this. We may be from different generations, but if your response is any indication, we have a lot in common beyond our love of Penny Arcade. Now some of you may remember me from such films as Stand By Me, where I held a tiny leech in my hand and other places. Um, And before you ask, yes, they were totally real. Or or maybe from Python, where I was eaten by a 25-foot snake, which was also totally real. (laughs) You may remember me from such television shows as Star Trek The Next Generation. where I wore a jumpsuit that was totally awesome. (laughs) You might remember me from Battle of the Syndicated Jumpsuit-Wearing Genius Children where I wore dolphin shorts and a tank top. That was less awesome. But don't let these suave roles fool you. I am a huge geek in every possible geeky way and nothing brings me as much joy as gaming. I love card games, war games, Euro games, role-playing games, cheap-ass games, and of course, video games. I do not love holographic orgasm games forced on me by butt-headed aliens when I'm just trying to get into Ashley Judd's jumpsuit. Like many older geeks, my gaming experience started not at a LAN party or a Wii treat. Wii treat, incidentally, is a term I've just coined, so if there are any Nintendo representatives who would like to buy it from me for Wii points, we can talk when I'm done. My gaming experience began in a dusty liquor store in the San Fernando Valley. In the spring of I lived there, but the valley sucks. We all know that. And so does the west side. Yeah, that's right, Westsiders. Take your traffic and shove it up your Santa Monica. In the spring of 1980, my parents went to visit two of their more annoying hippie friends. They dragged me along to play with their son, who was just a couple of years older than me. If you've read my blog or my book, Just a Geek, you already know this kid. He's the one who talked me into trading my awesome Death Star for his crappy land speeder asshole. (laughs) A little while after we arrived our parents emerged from the closed door of the den in a really cool cloud of dense smoke and they sent us around the corner to the liquor store to pick up some barbecue potato chips man. (laughs) When we arrived we saw this huge cabinet with a television inside it that looked like it came from the future. There were spaceships on the sides, and all of these buttons on a brightly colored panel that appeared to control some kind of ship that flew around a screen and shot lasers at rocks. Wait a minute, those aren't rocks, those are asteroids. It says asteroids right on the top. This is kind of like that Sears Pong thing that Dad has, but it's so much bigger. What the heck is this thing? We jumped around the cabinet for a while, waving bones in the air, while also Sprach Zarathustra played. Now, to you damn kids today who have grown up in a world where there are 110 billion television channels, cell phones smaller than a briefcase, and internet that's more like a series of tubes than it is like a truck, It may be difficult for you to understand why we looked at what was obviously an arcade game and had no idea what it was. It may be even more difficult for you to understand why we got so excited about a black and white vector graphics game. Well, if you think about the first time you played Halo, or the first time you played Grand Theft Auto 3 or the first time you saw a naked girl without a monitor between the two of you. And don't feel bad, two out of three is not anything to be ashamed of. And really, if you haven't played Halo, where have you been for the last ten years? Burned into the monitor was an interesting proposition. One coin one play. That seemed fair, and it didn't take a lot of convincing for us to plunk down a quarter from our parents' change. It was, after all, very unlikely they would notice one missing quarter in their uh, distracted condition. (laughs) Fifteen minutes and four dollars of one coin, one play later, it became slightly less likely we were going to avoid being busted. But we didn't care. Because the machine had been turned off the night before, we'd been able to record high scores on many of our games. A string of will and ass ran all the way down the screen. And it gave us a feeling of achievement that was normally reserved for report card season. For the record, I was Will. On our way back to the house, we excitedly chattered about this new technology we'd discovered. Sort of like finding that little arrow in FedEx, or the aliens in South Park. Once we knew about these things, we saw them everywhere we went. My meager $2 allowance suddenly needed to be budgeted between Star Wars figures and video games. I had officially joined the video game generation. In the early 80s, the games we played were as diverse as the places we played them. Liquor stores, donut shops, liquor stores record shops, liquor stores, pizza parlors, 7-Eleven, which sometimes sold liquor. I once saw a Star Castle machine at a gas station on uh, Interstate 40 between Barstow and Arizona. There was nothing else around for a thousand miles and the place didn't even have a working bathroom. But it was 1985, goddammit, and that meant there needed to be a video game there. And since we were there, I was required to play it. I was already a geeky kid. I liked to read. I liked to watch Twilight Zone and Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek after school. I had an electronic project kit from Radio Shack, a crystal radio kit from Radio Shack, and some handheld LCD video games from Radio Shack, and a toy box filled with all the other things you used to be able to get at Radio Shack before it became a cell phone reseller. Being a huge geek made me an ideal candidate for Pac-Man fever and once I caught it, there was no amount of cowbell in the world to cure it. (laughs) During this time, I had auditions almost every day after school. It was a very predictable routine. Uh, My mom would pick me up, drive me through a Burger King or Taco Bell, and we'd head into town for my auditions. In those days, it was not uncommon for me to have three or four auditions in an afternoon. And they were usually spread out across the city in very inconvenient ways. I'd have a commercial call at 3.45 on Fairfax near Sunset, then a 4.25 call for a movie of the week down in Venice, followed by a 5.15 appointment back in Hollywood somewhere. This geography means nothing to most of you. And the rest of you can put your iPhones away, because you're not impressing anyone with that Google Maps. But it was a brutal grind. Occasionally we'd roll a critical success on our avoid traffic check, and we'd have... (laughs) Boy, was that awesome. And it turns out you can't just get on the freeway and go, I'll take 20. No, you have to wait. So we would have 20 or 30 minutes to kill between auditions. Because it was the early 80s, just about every store in the world had arcade games in it, and if my homework was done, my mom would stop somewhere, give me a dollar, and let me play whatever I wanted. I quickly built a mental Rolodex of good games and their locations. In Culver City, it was a donut shop on Washington, had Mr. Do and Galaxian, with the bonus possibility that my mom might let me get a devil's food with sprinkles. In North Hollywood, there was a convenience store that had Donkey Kong, Pac-Man, and Tempest. I know! In Venice, there was a totally skanky head shop, but it had Asteroids Deluxe next to the cash register. There were also arcades, but they were mostly in shopping malls, so for me to take a trip into one of them was actually quite rare. In fact, if you watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High or the Bishop of Battle segment in Nightmares, awesome, you're the other guy that's seen it. Would you return the fucking movie so I can rent it, please? It's been sitting in my Netflix queue for months. The arcade featured in those movies was one of the best in the city and it was inside the Sherman Oaks Galleria. But this one arcade that I got to visit fairly regularly was called Captain Video on Pico near 20th Century Fox. I loved this place because it was never very crowded, I got five tokens for a dollar, and I always felt like I was hanging out with cool older kids. The way I remember it, songs like Don't Stop Believin' and Tainted Love were always playing and there were never any adults around to catch us cussing when we died with one rivet to go on the ziggurat level of Donkey Kong. (laughs) In late 1982 or 1983, I had a call back at Fox to play the kid who can wish people into cartoon land for Twilight Zone the movie. We got to West Los Angeles very early and my mom let me stop at that arcade while she went a few stores up the block for a frozen yogurt. This was also the time when frozen yogurt ruled the world. Pico was a busy street, and when I walked out of the hot, bright afternoon sunlight and into the dimly lit arcade, I left the roar of traffic behind me and entered another world. There were neon and black lights, posters of girls and rock stars, and the faint smell of mildew hung in the cool, recycled air. "Running with the devil blasted out of the jukebox. I carefully smoothed out my $1 bill, and I fed it into the token machine familiar excitement and anticipation welled up while it whirred and prepared to spit out my five tokens. In the back of the arcade was my intended target, Super Pac-Man. It had recently replaced a battle zone with a flaky controller at Sunland discount variety, and I'd stumbled upon a pattern that was virtually foolproof. I could play for an incredible ten minutes or more, a very impressive feat among my group of friends. Five tokens clanged out of the dispenser, and I eagerly scooped them up. I jingled them in my hand as I walked through the arcade. A kid kicked a machine and said, That's bullshit, man! I fucking shot him! (laughs) An employee shouted, Hey, take it easy, guy! The pong, 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 bing, bing, duck, 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 of pre-digital pinball machines was everywhere. As I passed different games, the sounds of Moon Patrol, Space Invaders, and Defender occasionally rose above Eddie Van Halen's wicked guitar work. (laughs) Just before I got to Super Pac-Man, I paused at this tall, white machine I'd never seen before. The decals on the side showed a scary, blue-robed warlock with his hand raised. On the marquee, the same wizard shot lightning bolts from his fingertips. I stopped and looked at it. And the game said, A, insert coin. Holy shit, this thing talks. <laughs> Before I knew what I was doing, I had done as the machine commanded. <laughs> Creepy synthesized music played, and the screen showed me that I could play with three men called warriors, or I could insert another coin and get seven. Seven men for two quarters. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I reached into my pocket, but stopped short of taking the add-on. Did I want to risk almost half my tokens on a game I'd never seen before? All right, I'm going to play it once and then reassess when I'm done. I dropped in my token and knew I'd made a wise investment. The game didn't just talk. It was, as we would say in those days, totally radical. <laughs> there were monsters, but the guy I controlled was in a spacesuit and he carried a laser gun. I was in a maze, kind of like a dungeon, but it floated over a star field. It was the perfect combination of D&D and science fiction. It was like someone had reached into my dreams, found the two things I loved more than anything else in the world, and put the result in front of me, eager to take my money. This perfect storm of passions and commerce wouldn't happen again until I visited Olympic Gardens in Las Vegas when I was 22. But that is all I'm going to tell you about that story. When I lost my three warriors, I quickly inserted two more tokens and played with seven. I didn't see the feared eponymous Wizard of War, but I blasted the Warlock, figured out that I could get a thousand points if I killed the other warrior on the screen, and made it to a level called the Arena. I got the fifth place high score, and I didn't even care that I couldn't put my initials into the game. I spent all of my tokens on Wizard of War before my mom came in and told me it was time to go on my audition. I talked her ear off the whole way to Fox about how cool this talking game was and how I couldn't wait to play it again. Mom, he kept saying, find me the wizard of war. And, and, and then he said, my warlocks are very hungry. Ha, 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 ha. So when I saw the Warluck, I killed it and I got a double score. I never found the wizard, but I totally know the next time I play it, I will. I'm really glad you enjoyed your game so much, Willow, she said but you need to focus on your callback right now. She was right. I was a professional actor, and I did focus on how totally awesome that game was. <laughs> and on how much better Van Halen sounded than that crappy Barbra Streisand shit she always played in the Toyota Hatchback. <laughs> I hardly ever found Wizard of War in other arcades. So the music, the glittering star feel, the color palette, and the graphic design, are all inextricably linked with Captain Video on Pico. Whenever I see Wizard of War, I am wormholed back to that arcade on a hot afternoon in the early 1980s when I heard a game talk to me for the very first time. Arcades were to my generation what Xbox Live and World of Warcraft are to this generation. They were social gathering places as much as anything else, and I really miss them. I missed the flickering neon on the walls, the weird smelling smoke, the stained casino carpet, the Van Halen and Joan Jett on the jukebox, and the times we had to choose between one more game of Tempest and getting a can of Coke from the vending machine. There was actually a time when you could get a cold can of Coke for a quarter. <laughs> I would tell you how much we paid for movies, but I've made enough people cry already this month. Arcades were more than just magnificent, geek Shangri-Las, filled with all sorts of video games and pinball machines. They were a vital part of my generation's social development. If I beat another kid in a two-player game and taunted him mercilessly with explicit references to his mother's sex life and my role in it, The way some online gamers do today? He would have justifiably kicked the ever-living shit out of me. So I learned, in arcades, the importance of good sportsmanship. Because arcades were physical places, staffed by real people, we had to worry about a lot more than getting kicked off a server if we were complete idiots in a game. And I feel like a cranky old man by bringing this up at all. there's a lot of you here. So would you do me a favor? When you're playing online, have fun, but don't be a dick, okay? I can't tell you how good it makes me feel to know there are so many people here who agree with that. Maybe I'll go ahead and sign up for Xbox Live after all. (laughs) I mention all of this about arcades because they are on the brink of extinction. If you can even find an arcade, it's most likely going to be filled with several derivative racing and shooting games, and there will be a couple of DDRs, and row after row of ticket redemption scams. I'm sorry, ticket redemption games. I desperately miss a time when I could walk into an arcade and play games as diverse as Burger Time and Crystal Castles. Now, unless some billionaire, and I'm looking at you, Mark Cuban, decides to open a chain of classic 80s video arcades, complete with Journey and Rush on the jukebox, dispensers that give out five tokens for a dollar, this enormously important part of my generation's coming of age will probably be gone forever. There was a resurgence of 50s diners in the 80s, so why not a resurgence of classic 80s arcades now? It could be a place where the damn kids today could find some common ground with grumpy old guys like me. And seriously, trust me on this, you haven't lived until you have tried to balance a melting waffle cone in one hand while you control a spaceship with the other. Of course, we didn't just play games in arcades. Thanks to guys like Nolan Bushnell and David Crane, we could also play games in our homes when we weren't watching videos on MTV, which, at one time, played music videos. (laughs) When I was introduced to gaming, the Atari 2600 was state-of-the-art, all eight bits of it. My brother and I played ours like crazy until around 1984 when we decided that we wanted to recreate the arcade experience at home. If you have the unfortunate memory of playing Atari Pac-Man or Atari Donkey Kong, you probably remember that tragic day when you realized that the 2600 just wasn't gonna cut it anymore and were finally willing to let your mother put it into the yard sale box in the garage. Around this time, I dialed back my video game playing time a bit and spent more time playing D&D. I had the most excellent hybrid of D&D and video games, Milton Bradley's Dark Tower. If some of you are grasping, like, Dark Tower, I kind of remember Dark Tower, maybe this will help. Oh, for fuck's sake, more brigands? I loved Dark Tower, but I didn't play it with the single-minded fury that accompanied my 2600 and titles like Mega Mania or Star Raiders. I still liked video games, and I went to the arcade as often as my parents would let me. I had a Vectrex, but I didn't spend that much time playing it. Arcade-style video games, it seemed, were never going to make it into my home the way they did for my friends who had ColecoVision. Man, I hate you guys that had ColecoVision. I wanted it so bad. That all changed in 1986. My parents had dropped my brother and me off in the toy department at Zodis after school while they shopped for the various things we took for granted, but were load-bearing staples in the Wheaton household, like barbecue-flavored potato chips. (laughs) After briefly browsing the action figures and board games, we turned a corner and saw the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was sitting at the end of an aisle, just waiting for a couple of lucky kids to pick up its controllers and take it for a spin. My brother and I looked at each other, marveling at our good luck, before bolting down the aisle and grabbing the controllers so that no one could get between us and unlimited video game bliss. There were 16 different games to choose from. It was phenomenal. My eyes raced across the colored title spread out before me. Golf? No, golf is lame. Wrecking Crew? What the hell is that? It became one of my favorites. Clue Clu Land? That, that sounds like math for some reason. <laughs> kung Fu? Bore it. Wait. Kung Fu? Like in the arcade? Let's play Kung Fu. Is it cool? My brother said. Yeah, I think it is. I think I've played this at Pinball Plus. Pinball Plus was our local arcade, and it was owned by a guy who would give us free tokens for good grades. He sold the arcade around 1989, and it was renamed, I am not making this up, The Enterprise. I felt right at home there, of course, but didn't get any free plays as a result of the obvious reasons. I hit start. And I was so impressed and excited by what I saw, I think I peed a little. (laughs) It was unlike anything I had ever seen on a console. It made our Atari 2600 feel as technologically advanced as a set of alphabet blocks that was missing three of the five vowels. (laughs) Oh my god, Jeremy, this is just like the arcade. Yeah, I know, it totally is. This is awesome. We alternated between Kung Fu, Excite Bike, and Pinball until our parents dragged us away what felt like hours later. When we were in the car, my brother said, Mom, Dad, that Nintendo is great. It's Nintendo, Jeremy. I said in my very best, serious, and mature voice. And it's probably the most advanced computer system that will ever be made. <laughs> my parents looked at each other. My father's eyes found mine in the rearview mirror. Is that a fact? He said. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I said. And before I could explain to my parents all of the reasons we would be stupid not to buy a Nintendo Entertainment System, my mother said, we do not need another video game in the house. Despite this, she was still a good mom. She said, you still have that Vectron and the Atari, and you don't even play them anymore. I opened and then closed my mouth. This was not a battle I could win. In the Big Track campaign of 1980, the Omnibot offensive of 1982, and too many Game & Watch skirmishes to count, I had been as successful arguing these matters with my mother as I was at beating the unbeatable pterodactyl in Joust. My brother and I shared a look that matched our parents. This discussion was over. I took comfort in the knowledge that when I was 18 and could buy it for myself, the NES would take a place in my house next to a tower of comic books and all the cool Star Wars figures. There would probably be a pretty sweet fort there as well. As it turns out, I've just described to you my current office. A few months later, however, my brother and I entered the Super Mario Bros. contest and we won, not just an NES, but a new color TV to play it on, thanks to our mastery of something called the turtle trick. (laughs) I see some of you remember the turtle trick. Well, for those of you who don't, this was a skill developed at great research and development cost at a nearby 7-Eleven over the summer it was a cool trick one of his friends had discovered. Now, this was long before the internet made trading secrets and tips as easy as going to GameFAQs, where, where, where you would freeze a turtle at the end of level 3 1, then jump on it repeatedly until it started coughing up bonus Marios. You could get nearly unlimited free men this way. My brother and I spent the bulk of the next 18 months playing our Nintendo, talking about playing our Nintendo, and wondering when we would next get to play our Nintendo. (laughs) Though we were initially excited about the prospect of playing arcade-style games like Excitebike and Donkey Kong, we found ourselves drawn toward the RPG-style games that were more complex than anything we had ever played on the 2600. These games took weeks or months to complete, and required writing down complicated letter and number codes to restart from our last save position. (laughs) I will never forget the night we stayed up until dawn and beat Metroid. Oh my God, dude, it's a chick. That is so cool! Do you want to play it again? No. The rest of our time was spent playing RPGs like Legend of Zelda. And side-scrollers like Castlevania and Contra. And the greatest hockey game in the history of life Blades of Steel. We loved our NES, and to this very day, it remains one of my favorite and most cherished systems, which I reluctantly put to sleep a few years ago, after no amount of blowing or smacking on the cartridges (laughs) could get them to work. Those games were great, but what I remember most fondly about them was playing them with my brother and our friends. We held Blades of Steel tournaments. We mastered the code with Contra. Even single-player games like Zelda were a social event for us because we had to make maps and then find out all the secret hidden areas in the game. We also learned that there were some single-player games that we just could not defeat individually. So, our group of friends developed level specialists for certain titles. (laughs) To this day, I cannot get very far in Castlevania without my brother's help. When Robert called me a few months ago and invited me to speak to all of you today, I was reluctant. I don't game nearly as much as I used to. I just don't have time. I'm not a big fan of first-person shooter games, uh, and I told him, I don't even own a next-generation console. I mean, I've been looking for a Nintendo Wii for months, and Robert interrupted me, and he said, I've got a Nintendo Wii. I can send it to you. Uh... Really? Yeah. I think you'll like it. And at the very least, it'll give you something to talk about. Okay. A couple of days later, the Wii arrived. I named it Wii Tun. And from the moment I plugged it in and started playing Wii Sports with my kids, I felt the magical excitement and the pure joy of playing a video game that I haven't felt since my brother and I spent every waking hour playing NES 20 years ago. I knew that I had come across something revolutionary. <laughs> Thank you. When we got WarioWare and had way too much fun making total asses of ourselves, jumping around and posing, (laughs) I understood why. The Wii is about playing games together. The reason I play Wii games more than anything other than Guitar Hero is that it is a social gaming experience. It's just like playing combat on the Atari 2600 or all of those games we used to play on Nintendo or getting our friends together for an MK3 session or an NHL hockey contest on Genesis. And this is the thing that drives me crazy when I hear Jack Thompson and Hillary Clinton and LA city attorney, Rocky Delgadio or any other opportunistic pandering, condescending politician lecture us about the alleged dangers of video games. Like they're some kind of anti-social activity. Gaming is a social activity. (laughs) Whether we're playing an analog tabletop game like Munchkin in somebody's dorm room, a console game in our living rooms, or meeting up in an online massively multiplayer game with our good friend Leroy Jenkins, We are engaging in an inherently social activity. The only thing anti-social about gaming are those few people who are so perfectly described by John Gabriel's greater internet fuckwad theory. (laughs) And while those trolls are annoying, at least they aren't trying to tell us what we can and can't play. The social activity of gaming is a load-bearing pillar in the foundation of my relationship with both of my kids. When I bought Super Mario Brothers on Virtual Console, I asked my 17-year-old to play with me, eager to share with him some of the joy I'd experienced when I was just a few years younger than he is now. As I entered level 1-4, he said, well, remember, you have to jump over the chain of fire And onto the top of the box. Listen here, Sonny, (laughs) I said in my very best grumpy old man voice. I was playing this game when you were in short pants. (laughs) Yes, he said, so was I. Owned We have had countless moments like this one, whether he is owning me in Guitar Hero or Halo, kicking my ass in Mario Kart, or asking me to help him make MAME work on his MacBook. (laughs) I've heard parents complain that video games are bad for kids or harmful to their emotional development. But I have never seen a video game reduce a kid to tears as effectively as one of those screaming, hyper-competitive Little League parents. I have never known a kid to feel like crap about himself because he can't win a Pokemon battle, but I've known plenty of kids whose parents make them feel like they're worthless because they don't want to play football. Speaking of parents and children and video games and opportunistic, pandering politicians, It is none of their fucking business what I choose to play with my kids. And I wish... (laughs) I wish that they would stop trying to tell me and and all of us what my kids, what our kids, what we can and can't play. I didn't let my kids play violent or graphic video games when they were too young to understand what the game was about, because I'm a good parent who was involved in his kids' lives. It was not because some idiot politician tried to score easy political points with the authoritarian 20 percenters who think censorship is totally awesome. I wouldn't let my kids play Vice City. Even though I loved it, and I played it nightly for months after they'd gone to bed because I felt it was a little too graphic and explicit for them. But when my son turned 17, he wanted to know if he could play it, and he called me while I was in Las Vegas on business to get permission. Mom wanted me to call you and find out if it's okay to play Vice City, he said. I I think it's okay, because I'm 17 and everything, but Mom said she wasn't sure and wanted me to talk to you because you've played it a lot. owned. (laughs) Ryan is 18 and in college now, but even at 17, he was incredibly mature and a very responsible person. I knew that he understood the difference between reality and video games. I was actually a little more concerned about the time he spent playing them than the content of the game. Well, I said, you're 17, so you're able to buy yourself tickets to R-rated movies and You know, I just don't think Vice City is that much different than Scarface or Goodfellas, but let me just check out with my friends here for a moment. I put the phone to my chest, and I explained the situation to a group of writers I was having dinner with. Does he know that it's not okay to hit a hooker with a baseball bat and get his money back in real life, one of my friends said? is a good question. (laughs) Ryan, I have to ask you one question. If you pick up a hooker in real life, is it okay to hit her with a baseball bat and get your money back after she gets out of your car? Well, he said, since hookers are empty shells and not real people, a whacker with a baseball bat. I relayed this to the table, and I said, I think he's mature enough for Vice City. (laughs) My friend also said, tell him that he has a future career in Hollywood. (laughs) That was a year ago, and even though he played all the way through the game, he never did whack a hooker in real life. Or do a drive-by or blow up a mall, or go for an insane stunt bonus by jumping a stolen car over a canal. (laughs) He did, however, get emotionally invested in the characters and their stories. He was sad when the game was over and, and felt a sense of loss because he wouldn't get to spend any more time with them. I had an identical reaction when I finished San Andreas. I knew these characters. I cared about these characters, and I was genuinely sad when their stories came to an end. I frequently feel this way when I finish a long novel, and occasionally at the end of a movie trilogy, like Lord of the Rings, not so much Star Wars. (laughs) But never so acutely as I did after about 150 hours of San Andreas. So whenever I hear one of these aforementioned douchebags pontificate about how dangerous and antisocial and devoid of redeeming qualities video games are, I get a little stabby. (laughs) (laughs) Because these games that we love to play so much are way, way more than the simplistic bloodbaths mass media likes to portray